A bee loves the flower, like a mosquito loves blood. A sapsucker has its sap, a bear its beech, and squirrels their acorns. But the plants fight back, waging chemical warfare on the aggressors. Or perhaps, with a little subterfuge, they trick their fellow symbiont into performing some essential function. But not all symbiotic relationships are participatory. In this adventure, we pile into our van and head to the mall to explore the gap, that neutral pale-walled bland store of blah. Our focus is on that frustrating symbiont, the shade of beige indifference, the aloof partner, unwitting accomplice, always callously oblivious to the other. Stick around as we look at symbiotic relationships where one species is either positively or negatively affected, while the other just can't be bothered to care much at all. It's unrequited love, but hey, that's not always such a bad thing. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Bo Peeps Knitting, we work hard to sheer costs, offering our customers the best products at the cheapest prices. We're stocked with all of your fiber arts needs, from needles and spinning wheels to yarn and dyes, whatever your project calls for, we're here for you. Leap into savings at Bo Peeps Knitting. Hey, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. Uh, I'm Teague, and I'm here with... I'm Glenn. Nice to be here with you, Teague. Great to be here with you as well, Glenn. So, uh, Glenn, um, just reading your bio here, and uh, it says that uh, at one point you were a carpenter who specialized in restoring church domes. That's right. Um, there's, you know, it's very, it's very fulfilling as a carpenter to be working for God. Felt like I was restoring the domes for uh, humans as well as spiritual beings. Yeah, so as a, a carpenter specializing in restoring church domes, I feel like you're well equipped to talk about our two topics today. So we're going to be talking about commensalism and amensalism. So this is part of our series on symbiosis. So uh, in the last episode, we were talking about mutualism, which is a type of interaction where both individual organisms, the two symbionts, uh, benefit from the relationship. And with commensalism. So commensalism is, uh, Glenn, you want to give us a definition here of what commensalism is? Uh, my understanding of commensalism, again, I, I tend to think of these in terms of my personal relationships, but it's when one person is sort of getting something out of it and the other person is sort of indifferent or maybe doesn't even notice that the that the other person is even there. <laughs> so this is... Uh... It's a little one-sided, but it's not it's not harmful. They just don't notice. They don't really care one way or the other. This is me in in middle school with Carla. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Carla. <laughs> um, you still, are you still in touch with Carla? No, no. Is there a chance she's probably, listening to this? Probably safe to say no. Okay, there's a chance. <laughs> Carefully omitting last names here. <laughs> so, uh, so we were talking about positive positive interactions with mutualism, and the focus here is on things where one of the observers is neutral. So, with commensalism, one species benefits, like you said, and then the other just positive even neutral. Notice. Right. Yeah. And then comment or amensalism. What's uh what's amensalism? I feel like amensalism is when one one is negatively impacted and the other is sort of neutral. Neutral negative. Neutral negative? Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? So with symbiosis, um sort of a vernacular understanding of symbiosis is often uh, associated with mutualism where two species are are benefited but with symbioses essentially what they are 
is a uh, long-term interaction between two different species. Um, and so, yeah, we can describe those interactions as being positive, negative, or neutral. So these are the ones with a neutral symbiont. So symbiont is one of the organisms involved in the symbiosis. And uh, so we'll focus on commensalism first. Uh, and yeah, so uh, it's related to mutualism, but again, one species is indifferent. And largely the way to think about it is it's a form of facilitation. So one organism is just going about its daily activity and doing whatever it does. And as it moves through the environment, as it eats its way through the environment, sleeps through the environment, generates heat in its environment, it's leaving behind this trail of things. So those things that it leaves behind are potential resources for other individuals. Uh, those other individuals and in, or other species in the environment can exploit those resources to their benefit but their exploitation of those resources has little or no bearing on the other individual so sort of when i'm walking around my my pockets are bulging with money as they often are and some of it's dropping off behind me and people come behind and pick that up i don't really notice you know because my wealth is so massive but they're benefiting from it that'd be an example you, I mean, you chose a, a pretty niche profession that, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, podcast so. sidekick. It pays incredibly well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a problem I have. It's not really a problem because usually the pockets do empty out after a while. In that situation, which actually is probably a perfect analogy, is that you wow. are, it's not that you're totally neutral in that, you are losing out. Right, but I would, like even, but I would, right, I am, but I would be losing out even if those other, other organisms weren't there. It's not their fault; they're picking up behind me. Okay, so so anyway, so back to your analogy of dropping money out of your pockets as you're strutting around, little fat cat. <laughs> I do and, strut. Uh, I do tend to strut when I walk. Have Thanks to for noticing. Out of your yeah, pockets. it helps with the friction on the, the hips with the money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that your experience of that is totally neutral. It's essentially neutral because you don't to me you don't care about quarters yeah. because you're no. so wealthy right so you are negatively impacted but it's essentially a non-impact on you so it's essentially neutral right so, so with both commensalism and amensalism these are situations where it's virtually neutral not exactly neutral but might as well close enough to neutral yeah and, and we'll see this more with amensalism so with most things, when we talk about relationships uh, or symbioses, they evolve around services or resources. Um, and so with uh, services for commensalism, so some of the ways in which a species can benefit from another species presence is uh, through having refuge. One species, just by existing in the world, protects other species without really knowing about it or actively engaging in this that is, relationship. So is this coming back to my dome profession? Like maybe people were sleeping in the church I didn't know about and I was providing them refuge by building the dome? Is that where you were that's where you're getting at? I I wasn't getting at anything. Just this to clarify just for our viewers. Your profession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the this exact is, way. Yeah. Um, although I guess, you know what? Maybe subconsciously the reason I sought you out is because uh a lot of commensalism, in terms of my understanding of it and interactions with it, come from examples with beavers. And so uh, so in terms of some of the resource refuge from the external environment, if you, uh, so one of the stresses 
or there are a bunch of different stresses from the environment that organisms are faced with. And uh, one of them might be just the cold of the winter. And right. so if you, um, they're uh, like uh, snakes will hibernate in large congregations. There's a place up in Canada where there are like 70,000 snakes. Oh my God hibernate in this hibernaculum that's this crevice in this uh in the bedrock if you go in there i'm not saying that that i would or that you would but if you no. went in would they wake up and come to life or would they just be calmly asleep like could you take a nap in a snake hibernaculum in theory yeah because that seems be like good. a really good dare for somebody yeah, you, you could probably be somewhere comfortable in there a little <laughs> they might be but... soft and squishy i just don't know would they wake up are they kind of out for the winter they're, they're pretty up. much out um yeah so they're uh, cold-blooded, which isn't a great term. Right, but, uh, but say you got in there and you're warm and then maybe they wake up. Oh, maybe it would warm. wake them up and then, oh, just, yeah, maybe I'm don't do it. I'm just trying to, okay. Or but do it be in a safety bag where your heat is kept in. But anyway, so, um, so uh, I don't know why I was talking about snakes because they're cold-blooded, but uh, some species will hibernate in large groups together. Oh, for the snakes, they're hibernating in that place altogether because the Stay environment alive, has this right. one spot that's really good for it. But with flying squirrels, they'll hub huddle in a single den where you can have non-related individuals that are sharing a little nest cavity or a, oh. a cavity in a tree. And so their body heat is radiating out and warming each other. Keeping each other warm. Yeah. That's um, adorable. So we're, Do you think they start flying the together after that? idea. Oh, yeah, it really yeah is. like all could they all like hands. join join paws or hands and then just fly in a giant line just so at the end just hunt. once once at the end of winter to celebrate the the first spring flight of the year <laughs> they all the big line <laughs> flight i want to see that i would <laughs> I rather would... see that than a snake hibernaculum um, yeah probably if it came down to it so uh with beavers where beavers build these lodges so i guess this is why i sought you out so you're creating these domes <laughs> beavers are creating domes and oh, their own masterpieces in the middle of these ponds and in the winter they'll live inside uh the lodge and and they eat it right they start eating their inside muskrats their lodge. do muskrats oh. will eat their lodges they make lodges out of cattails um and they'll slowly eat it through the course of the winter but no with uh beavers they have an entrance to the water that they built the lodge in. Uh, they have an entrance that's under water, and they'll swim out, collect st uh, sticks that they've cached or stored under the ice, and then they'll bring them back into their They eat those sticks, though, right, lodge. that are in their lodge. So, like, if I were gnawing on church pews, it would be, it would be an bad. even better analogy. It would yeah. be bad for the church, but... Yeah, well, just to clarify, the sticks that they're gnawing on and eating are stored outside of their den, and then they bring oh. them in, feed on them. They have like a little feeding platform inside the lodge, and they'll feed on it, and then they'll bring it back out as waste. Um, but so when they're like, if I, okay, I see. So if I was bringing in other churches' pews and gnawing on them, and then taking them back outside, I would be very similar to a beaver in this analogy. Exactly. Yeah, you would be very similar. Good. Because okay. um, I did and that. So, uh, so while they're inside of their lodges, they're just hanging out. They have this, uh, so there's mud packed on the outside and then snow accumulates on top of the lodge. And, um, not all the time, but sometimes you can see on like really cold days, there'll be a little chimney kind of up at the top where heat is radiating up through the lodge and it melts wow. the snow on the top where air is exchanging from the lodge to the environment. Um, but it's warm inside the lodge. It's significantly warmer inside the lodge than the ambient temperature 
which is one huge benefit of beavers living in a lodge. So if you're another animal, you might want to take advantage of that. You might so, want to go into the lodge. Exactly. So there's um, there are a bunch of different species that will den inside of a beaver lodge in the winter. They all have to be swimming animals to be able to get their way in and out. An empty so, one or like while the beavers are there, they'll go in with the beavers. An empty one would be nice. And so some beaver lodges will be taken over. So I had one in uh, the woods near my house that was a bank lodge. So not one constructed out in the middle of this pond. And then the pond was abandoned. The water went down. And I put a game camera up inside of the lodge and there were um, mink that were sleeping in there at night and there were actually possum that slept in there and also muskrat. Um, But muskrat and uh, mink will both den inside of beaver lodges. And so the beavers would be doing this normally, so they don't really care. And they might derive a slight benefit from it because the mink and or muskrat would be generating body heat, but the mink and the muskrat without putting any energy investment into the relationship are deriving a bunch of benefit. So they're getting access to a lodge that's heated. So that's a a strong commensalistic relationship. That's a great example. And then my question, just for the listeners who are curious, did you ever try spending the night in the lodge yourself? Could you fit into it? Yes. You did? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How did that go? Did you keep the game Uh, camera on so it would record your... No, I didn't. Um, so uh, I've I've successfully gotten into two beaver lodges. Uh, one was an actual lodge and one was this uh, bank lodge. And the bank lodge I was actually able to sleep inside. It was a really cool lodge that had sort of been excavated out under these pine trees. And so the pine trees were growing up above the water line. And then the roots had held in place all of the soil. And then the uh, beavers had hollowed out the mud underneath the pine tree. Actually, the pine tree came down this year. This was probably about 10 years ago or so when when I had this experience. Um, Yeah, but uh, they had excavated out a pretty sizable little space, and it was large enough for me to get to this little feeding platform kind of area. And then there was another cavity space higher up above that, which is probably where they were sleeping that I couldn't quite fit on that. but I was <laughs> I was able to get up there and take a little nap. Did anyone join you, like a mink or a muskrat? Or no, not on that trip. Oh. Yeah, maybe next time. Yeah. Um. So that was an example of uh, an animal providing a resource, refuge from the cold. But there are also plants that will provide a habitat or an environment for animals at no expense to the plant. So one of the great uh, one of the great things about being up here in the northeast is in the fall when all of the trees turn colors, not all but all the broadleaf trees turn colors and then they drop their leaves. Those leaves would get dropped every year regardless because the trees it's uh too uh the environment is too cold and too stressful for the trees to successfully risk or to appropriately risk maintaining their leaves during the winter. So they shed their leaves, they'd be doing this regardless. And then there are all these things that live in the forest floor that depend on those leaves for insulation from the cold during the winter, uh, or as a food source. So one of my favorite signs of spring is, um, we had this a few weeks ago, uh, from when we're recording this in the middle of May, 
where those first warm nights of spring, if you go out at night, you can hear this rustling sound in these hardwood forests with all the leaves on the ground. And it's when all the night crawlers, the large earthworms that we have, they come up from the soil and they start grabbing leaves and bringing them back down into their burrows to feed on. So it's commensalism because the earthworms, huge benefit uh, for them. They have food source, they have insulation from the cold. And then for the trees, they don't really care. They don't have, well, the earthworms, you know, they, so we had them in our compost, some sort of worms. <laughs> My sense is that earthworms poop out uh, nutritious poop for the trees, potentially. Yeah, definitely. Eating. So it might benefit the trees a tiny, tiny bit, potentially. Yeah, and I'm actually, um, that particular interaction is commensalistic with the trees. There are other consequences or side effects of that feeding that are actually really significantly harmful for um, uh, some of our native plants. So sugar maple, for example, they drop their their seeds in the fall before the leaves fall. So what they're depending on is the the seed or the fruits, really, the samaras, these winged uh, fruits, right, the they'll helicopter fall, seeds, the little helicopters, Call they'll fall out of the trees, they'll land on the ground, and they have to survive through the winter and True. winter cold can be harsh. And it's essential for them to be the seeds to be able to germinate. Um, but they need to be protected on some they level. need their leafy blanket and the worms so they are need taking the leafy, it. They need the leafy blanket. And this is like when I are... steal my when I go in and steal my roommates blankets when they're sleeping. It's cold. <laughs> exactly. And then they wake up cold and miserable and cranky. Um, yeah, it's similar. And I've so seen this. with the sugar maples, uh, earthworms, which are not native to the northeast, they were eradicated uh, when the glaciers were here. And uh, so a lot, a lot of our northern species haven't co-evolved with earthworms or at least European varieties that have such a significant impact on leaf litter. And so the side effects of this commensalistic relationship are actually really um, deleterious to, the sugar, mm. to sugar maples in particular. If you look at something like buckthorn, which does really well with low levels of leaf litter, then it's sort of a, a mutualistic or maybe a synergistic relationship between uh, earthworms and buckthorn. Wow. Earthworms taking our maple syrup away. Yeah. <laughs> As a Vermonter, yeah, exactly. that, yeah, I'm not okay with that. Yeah. So another, uh, so when we think about like environmental stressors, so providing refuge um, for commensalistic relationships. So environmental stressors are uh, like cold weather. The sun can be uh, damaging for some plants. Like if you have uh, a tree that falls over things in the understory that are all of a sudden exposed to the sun, direct sunlight, they might you get sunburned. sunburned. And so that can be problematic. So actually, uh, shade, providing shade can be beneficial for things, but also wind can be damaging uh, to plants. And so it, things that are on the interior of a forest versus the edge are buffered by winds, which uh, can dry out plants. They can also knock plants over. So these aren't specific to from one species to another. Um, but one of the things that... Uh, that can happen is if you have like a logging operation that selectively cuts out a bunch of trees, you then all of a sudden have all these other trees that are standing there that when the wind blows them back and forth, they're not bumping into and being held up by other trees. And so you can get a lot of wind snap after a logging operation that thins out quite a bit. Um, so there's sort of, uh, I guess that might be more mutualistic where both species are being propped up or supported by the others uh, that are growing around it. 
But then another harsh environmental stressor might be something like uh, snow. And so in again, in the Northeast where I live, you can map out where sensitive deer habitat is just by looking at aerial images and finding where stands of hemlock are. So hemlock doesn't care about deer all that much. It can, deer can have it a browse. negative impact yeah. on their seedlings, but um, mostly hemlock doesn't care about the presence of deer. So it's virtually neutral to deer, but deer absolutely depend on hemlock. Uh, hemlock in the winter blocks this is in the the northern colder parts of the range, but hemlocks block snow from falling and hitting the uh, the forest floor in the winter. They also um, trap heat in, so they don't get a lot of heat during the day because it's so shady in the understory. But at night, all the heat that's stored in the ground radiates up from the soil, hits the low branches on hemlock, and then bounces back bounces down. Back. So it sort of traps them. So they so need it for of... sleeping. You can imagine it being similar to an environment that has clouds versus that doesn't have clouds. So deserts, super, super cold at night, and then a cloudy environment at night will be relatively warmer. And those hemlocks act like clouds right. of bouncing heat back down. That's what I tell tell my roommates when I take their blankets. Like, it's cloudy out, so you should be fine. Or sometimes <laughs> yeah, I put a little... You'll be good. Just look I at the forecast. Sometimes a hemlock, blank, a hemlock branch I put on them. Yeah, so that's an example where deer are really positively benefiting from this relationship. And again, hemlock don't really care. Um, another example using the hemlocks would be uh, because they... So hemlocks are most shade tolerant trees. They can tolerate about 10% sunlight for their wow. growth of their seedlings. Um, some hemlocks, I guess, individuals can grow two to 400 years before they even produce cones for reproduction so playing the wow. long game that is because it's so game. shady in a hemlock forest that they're just they can't put any extra energy into reproduction but if they can't do it then things in the understory certainly can't and so if you look at the understory uh so do you know any kind of plants that grow in the understory of a hemlock forest um even smaller hemlocks no <laughs> yeah um so there'd be very Shade tolerant because hemlocks presumably are providing a great deal of shade because they're so yeah. thick. It's your wild ginger from last. Do they have the wild ginger there from your? No, they don't have. They don't have okay. wild ginger. So what do well maroon okay, so, colored? Uh, wild ginger. So how do they reproduce? Wild ginger. They get the ants to come to their little low lying flowers for the other insects, and they carry. They pollinate um, that way, and then they have these. Tubery roots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So asexual. Maybe have vegetative. Yeah, maybe both. Maybe they were a bad example because their flowers are mostly tricking pollinators into thinking that there's carrion there. But with right. other flowers um, that you might have grown in a forest, like a spring beauty or something like that, they're offering a nectar to a pollinator in exchange for taking pollen from one flower to the other. So what is nectar? Sugar water. Sweet, sweet sugar water. It's a yeah. bribe. It's, a, it's bribe, a bribe, right? And where does the bribe come from? The plant. The plant has to make it. The sun, right. So if you don't have much sun, how are you going to get much nectar? How are you going to make your bribes? This was my problem before I started robbing banks. Like, how am I going to bribe people to do anything? Yeah, it's hard, have, right? They I didn't don't have, have the money. funds. My, you can't yeah, pay my people to do services for you. So you have to my do it yourself. Plan. So yeah. what plants? So uh, yeah, what plants don't rely on flowers for reproduction? 
uh, whether it be wind, little wind pollinated, <laughs> the little wind grasses, little wind pollinated plants. Yep. So you might have some sedges and stuff, but also spore producing plants. So ferns. So the uh, understory of these hemlock forests have a lot of ferns in them that don't require any extra sugar, really, for reproduction. So there's a commensalistic type of relationship between intermediate wood fern or Christmas fern or one of these other ferns that live in the understory of a hemlock forest and are able to grow in that environment, outcompete other species because they don't require sugars. So they have sort of a commensalistic relationship where the hemlocks don't care at all about their presence in the understory but they benefit greatly from it. What a nice example. What a great example. Yeah. And we benefit from the beautiful ferns. Yeah. So those are just some examples about the environment at large and uh, sort of the abiotic or the non-living world and how that influences other species in a relationship. But there are also relationships around uh, competition or um, sorry about refuge from uh, like predators. And so if you have like, and these are, are pretty weak relationships because one species is neutral. Actually, this is true for all of these because one species is neutral. There's not a lot of glue holding these relationships together. And often they're just opportunistic. So like I have rabbits that are just mowing down pretty much everything that I plant in my backyard. Um, but there's this dense thicket of honeysuckles that is, uh, not anymore, I've cleared a lot of it back, but that provides shade or shelter to the rabbits that are foraging in my backyard for uh, blueberries. And so that's a situation where the honeysuckles don't really care about the rabbits, but the rabbits get a great benefit of having a nice protective layer uh, that would free them from uh, potential predators. You also get this in like primary succession areas. So say an abandoned farm where you have a bunch of red cedars that will come up and those red cedars all the young branches have these sharp little pointy needles on them that are deterrents from deer and cows uh, from browsing on them and those act as sort of these nurseries or shelter trees for other things that are shade tolerant and can grow under the shade of a uh, red cedar juniper Um, and they're protected from browsers by having all these spiky things above it. So the red cedar might be sort of affected because it's competing for soil resources with these other little seedlings, but essentially it's indifferent to their presence. But the things in the understory, the next generation of trees, which are a different species, are going to get a little shelter from predators that might eat their tiny, precious little developing bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So those are sort of some examples of uh, commensalistic relationships around a uh, a service that's being provided. But then you also have a lot of commensalistic relationships that center uh, around resources. And so these are things that are part of an animal or plant's body that fall off <laughs> in some uh some way and are no longer used by that individual, the symbiont that's neutral. Like if your arm just falls off. Like if your arm just falls off and you don't need it anymore, and then something else comes along and either makes a home out of it or eats it. Wields it as a club, maybe? Wields it as a club. Somebody else intimidates (laughs) or like attaches it to them. They're like, oh no, three-armed person. That's scary. I'll give you my money. Yeah. So repurposing that in some sort of way. Um, Yeah. So you have like mites that live on your skin 
and they eat dead skin cells, which is probably somewhat good for you, but you you know those skin cells they would, would just fall, fall off, off anyway. Anyways, I was hiking in Alaska a few years ago, and uh, I went up. It was a four day trip that I did with a couple of friends, and when we were uh, when we were hiking, I spooked this little warbler out of the the little side of the trail, just this little bank. And their eyes went over to the where the warbler was, and my eye went to where the warbler came from, and because it came from down on the ground and it left the ground like the last possible second, so I figured it was a nest. And sure enough, I looked and it had burrowed out this little cavity into this little sandy bank, and it was just lined with all of these moose hairs, which is really cool. And so as we were hiking over the next few days. Uh, we saw this probably a half a dozen times or so, and every single time the nest was lined with moose hair. And then at the end of the hike, we got picked up my my uncle, and then we were driving back into Anchorage, and we saw a moose, and it just was this hideous patchwork quilt of fur. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, you know, it was like molting its it was dropping. winter coat. It wasn't the warblers had been coming up and like yanking the hairs out. No, they want, they love them so much. And so those winter hairs on moose, they're hollow. They're really insulative, insulative for the moose. And so the Wilson's warbler is able to use that feature of the moose's body that it's shedding anyways, and able to use it as an insulative layer of its nest. So it's a cool relationship where the moose doesn't care, doesn't know. And right. the warbler is super stoked on getting this great little nest weaving material. The moose get, must get some satisfaction if it comes across it at some point. Be like, oh, look, my hair. Look at the cute babies. Did you think about at all cutting off some of your own hair just to see if it could be part of the the nest? You know, be repurposed just for emotional satisfaction, not for. I have heard of uh, people that have clipped their hair in the spring. And left out as left nesting out. material. I cut my own hair today. Birds. You know, we're in the COVID times right now. And I cut my own hair and it was just sitting there in the sink. I should have put it outside. I could have been part of the... Could have been woven in a nice great little cycle of life. Nest. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next time. Next time. Yeah. Well, you still got more hair. I could cut more off tonight. Yeah, after this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the other obvious example of uh, something that animals are are shedding or or eliminating are uh, feces, and so there are all sorts of things, there are whole ecosystems that come up around uh, animal Pinned droppings, and so yeah. dung beetles, um, yeah, coprivores, the things that are eating. I think we talked about that on our episode about symbiosis in general. Is these things that are coprivores that are eating um, waste. So, Basically, yeah. if if somebody says like describe yourself in one word, if you say that to someone and they say coprivore, that might be a red flag for a long term relationship. Yeah, that's probably the end of that. Unless it's a metaphor that they're like take bad things in life, or and they they turn them into something good. Which case, I think I would prefer it'd be a scavenger maybe than a coprivore. If I was using <laughs> it's a little specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so good to know because that did come up in a speed date I had the other day. Yeah. Um. Actually, what so. Dogs, which are just disgusting animals in so many different ways and will eat poop. Uh, one possible reason is dogs are strong omnivores. And so uh, if they come across scat, oftentimes like uh, scat hasn't been fully digested. Right. So they get and, a bit. Yeah. Like rabbits and deer. Will Give it another round. They eat their own poop. Yeah. They, do, they have twice, right? Rabbits will do it twice. But just yeah. two. They, they, they cut themselves off. 
they dog might just up. go for several cycles as far as i know <laughs> and then they'll throw up and they'll eat that yeah it's a big mess. yeah it's not um, again not a good sign on a date yeah that's not happening a good, that is a serious red flag well, so if you want to end a date you might could use that technique it would be good. It'd be similar to like a sea, uh, sea cucumber just eviscerating itself to uh, <laughs> scare off potential predators. I get a lot of my yeah my 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 role model modeling for dates from sea cucumbers, but we can talk about that another time. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about that when we talk about parasites. <laughs> so yeah, so d- dogs will eat uh, other things waste, um, and one of the th- uh, actually one of the cool hypotheses for why uh early homo sapiens were able to outcompete and essentially eliminate from the environment neanderthals was from a commensalistic with or a mutualistic relationship with dogs that started as a commensalistic relationship with dogs and so dogs which are scavengers would have been scavenging waste piles from carcasses that humans had killed. And uh, it's just a couple steps closer from having dogs congregating around kill sites to having dogs congregate around campsites. Um, And so this is one possible theory for uh, the early domestication of dogs leading to our out-competing early Neanderthals. Um, So thank you, commensalism. Wow. To our man, man and woman's best friend, Although I'm a little disturbed by the the parallel you're making between a campsite and a kill site. It just feels like... I like the word campsite better than kill site when I'm camping with my child, for example. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in a modern context, they probably have <laughs> I think it's better to call it meanings. a campground than a kill ground. I yeah. think it's better marketing. Yeah. Uh, marketing's never been my, my strong suit here. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so so that's sort of it for commensalistic relationships. They're uh, somewhat weakly organized, at least. There are some things that specialize in commensalism, so dung beetles are definite specialists in it. Um, but with the other species involved, it's very, it's a, a loose thread. Loose Yeah, that they don't have any energy investment or ad- specific adaptations for maintaining the relationship, whereas the other species might. I did a tiny bit of my, my normal etymological research. Do you know where the word commensal came from and what it means, commensal? I I don't know. So com is like with and mensal is um, same as mesa in Spanish and Portuguese table. So apparently it meant eating at the same table. It's commensalism. That's what it used to mean. Cool. Which, um, which seems more uh, mutualistic than I would have expected from the word. Yeah, I, where my brain initially went was uh, co also like together with, and then Mensa. I was just thinking of like a the, smart the genius people. society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, like hang, with, hang around the genius with smart people. people. Yeah, yeah, and then the money's falling out of their pocket as it does exactly, and then you you sort of it's neutral to them. They're geniuses; they don't mind, but you're picking up some of their wisdom. Yeah, and then I was trying to think of times in my life I was commensalist, and I think maybe. This continuing my sort of part-time career as a dumpster diver. Would you say dumpster diving is a good commensalist example? Yeah, totally. It's it's things are being discarded. Stores. Yeah, things that are discarded. Yeah. Which is different from when I used to steal from grocery stores, which was... They're very different. So I think I've moved in the right direction. Yeah. So I guess that 
moves us into the negative end of things. Uh, uh, not that stealing oh. would be, that would probably be competition. Um, oh, good. Or potentially parasitism. So the other end, so commensalism is one species benefits and the other is neutral. And then amensalism is so A, away from or not at the table. So <laughs> something that is negatively harmed um, by this relationship. And then the other one is uh, is neutral. And I think we talked about this in the symbiosis epi- episode where this is sort of the saddest <laughs> form of symbiosis of all, where it's like <laughs> complete unrequited love. Unrequited um, love. Where yeah. one is spurned and the other is, you know, completely oblivious. Doesn't notice. <laughs> is completely oblivious to the other one. So the other way of thinking about amensalism is, uh, so there are sort of two broad categories of it. And one is competition that is extremely off balance. And so in competition, which we'll talk about coming up, both species are harmed by having to compete for the same resource with something else. So they have to in, uh, they have to dedicate resources, energy, time, effort into acquiring a resource at the same time as another one, as another individual is. And then with amensalism, one species is maybe desperately trying to get access to a resource that the other one is so much better at accessing. Um, So as maybe one example of this is there's an organism that probably nobody, well, maybe a few people, um, some of our uh, stellar listeners might know (laughs) called uh, oyster shell scale. Hope I'm not ostracizing anyone. (laughs) Yeah, Scale is a tiny insect, right? Not like a scale... Yeah, exactly. So beak scale, maybe more people are familiar with, which is this tiny little insect that is similar to a mosquito where it has a little sucking mouth part and it lives on a beach. So beach scales live on beach and it's one of the things that's causing beach decline. Um, With the oyster shell scale, they're kind of generalists a little bit, but they're really often found on aspens. And so they have these sucking mouth parts. They're eating the uh, nutrients that are in the inner bark of uh, quaking aspen trees. So that's their primary resource that they're competing with everything else for access to that. So who is extremely good at mowing down on quaking aspen? Uh, are we going back to beavers? Is this a beaver thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Once you slept in the lodge, basically you became, I think maybe part beaver yeah so it makes sense yeah that's the highest compliment i'm not saying you look like one but you you have the industriousness of one thank you you're welcome yeah so uh beavers are extremely good they're they can smell quaking aspens from a half mile away that's fallen down and they can cut down an entire tree and then they can eat it over the course of a season and so if you're an oyster shell and you're super tiny and they're basically anchored in place so they look it looks like an, uh, they secrete this little waxy covering that looks essentially like an oyster shell. And they live under that and they'll feed on the inner bark in there. So they're essentially they're a little shelter. immobile. They have a, little sh- they have a little lodge they built themselves, much like the beaver in yeah. miniature. And so they're just anchored in place and they feed. They're small. They don't take a lot of nutrients from the tree. Um, but a beaver... It has a huge impact and it'll cut down the tree, kill it. And while they're eating the bark, they'll probably ingest a bunch of these tiny little uh, insects. And so they're competing for the same resource 
and the beavers are way, 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 way better at it. So if you have a colony of beavers that live in an area, the chances of you having these oyster shell scales goes down significantly. So that would be an example of like a similar food resource, but you could also have competition for oxygen. So in the north, where we have lakes and ponds that freeze over, and then in the spring when all the uh, snow melts and you get all the fertilizer and agricultural runoff that then pools down into these bodies of water, that often will fuel the growth of uh, cyanobacteria, which are these sort of algae-like bacterial colonies in the water, and their populations will explode. There are also other things like diatoms and other microscopic organisms, plankton, that live in the water, and their populations can spike. And plants photosynthesize and they're producing oxygen, but when they are growing really, really fast, they're using more oxygen oxygen than they're producing. And so they're competing with fish for this resource, but they're way better at utilizing the oxygen than fish are. And so they, uh, in some of these shallow ponds that uh, freeze over and then because they're shallow, they can warm up much faster. And um, when they warm up and you get all the fertilizer running in there, that algae algae blooms will just, you know, explode and then runs out of oxygen and you get this huge die off of uh, the larger, faster swimming fish. Fish die. Yeah. Which is great for bald eagles and ospreys that are returning on migration. Um, but it's an example of uh, the the algae aren't really competing. They're just too good. It would be like me uh, in Space Jam, <laughs> where I am the worst basketball player ever, and I could not compete at all. And so in I could Space be on the Jam. court, but nobody would have any idea that I was there. And so the <laughs> algae are sort of the same way, where they're out there on the court playing basketball, and then the fish are like me, where they're useless um and so it's competition but not really and so this would be this you might be useful balance. it would be like demoralizing the other team and look we got this guy he can't even dribble and we're still beating you yeah and that like that has an emotional impact i'm yeah. not saying fish are the same way i feel a little betrayed by the story teague because i thought of plants as being our friends you know breathing in carbon dioxide spitting out oxygen but in this case they're sucking up the oxygen. Yeah, you have no friends in the natural world. Uh, that is the moral of the story. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? That seems sad. Yeah, well, you just have things that exploit you and that you can exploit. Like your beaver. See, I, I need just I need to I need an animal that I can sleep in its home and become one with, and then I'll have a friend. Yeah, at least temporarily. Temporarily. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, that's sort of the competition angle of amentalism. And then there's, uh, also antagonism. And so antagonism is usually like really, really low investment antagonism. And so this is uh chemical warfare that plants will wage on other plants. And the, uh, technical jargony term for this is allelopathy. And so allelopathy is uh, pathy as in like sick or disease. And then allelo is, uh, I have no idea, <laughs> other? Is it genes? Your alleles? Isn't allelo some sort of genetic <laughs> prefix? It is, yeah. But, we uh, could have looked know, this up, of course. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so in allelopathy, uh, you have a plant that secretes some sort of chemical into the environment and that is an inhibitor of other plants 
uh, gr that would potentially be competing in the same environment. So juglon is a great example, which is found in the species juglans, um, which are butternut and walnut and uh, other species of walnut. Um, and so, yeah, juglone is a strong inhibitor for uh, things in the nightshade family, things in the rose family. And um, yeah, there are other plants that do this. So uh, sorrels, which are in the genus uh, oxalis, they produce these crystals uh, called uh, oxalic acid crystals. Uh -huh. um, and those are toxic to other plants. This is the stuff that... Oh, those are toxic good. to other plants? Yeah, they're, they're delicious. Yes. Yeah. So, Under the redwoods? So they're able to compete with these other things because they create toxic soil for most things. Hemlock, which we talked about earlier, the needles will acidify the soil. And so they have a, uh, they create a condition in the environment that makes it less likely for other things to be able to compete with them. Um, and so these are sort of these antagonistic relationships between one species that puts low energy investment. I kind of have a problem with antagonism being considered here because they're not neutral parties. Like uh, walnuts and sorrels are putting energy. Yeah, into it doesn't seem producing. totally neutral. They're attacking. Yeah. They're defending but if you, their territory. If you look at the energy expenditure, it's it's, it's a small, minimal enough to consider it essentially a neutral. Um, uh, a neutral effect um, with juglone it might be partially because a lot of the juglone is produced in the leaves and the fruit uh, which then fall and decompose in the soil so they're not just producing it through their roots uh, and so those parts of the plant are producing juglone to prevent herbivores from feeding on the foliage and the fruits but then they also work in the soil so it's an added benefit by the way, Teague, I was utterly, completely listening to you the whole time, but I did also multitask and look up allelo as a prefix. Apparently it means something like relationship or something that's in a reciprocal type. So it's oh, a relationship, great. pathological relationship, but I'm not going to tie this to my past relationships. Sure, my, my present one is good, parties, if you're listening, for sure. But yeah, it gives me a new word to describe past relationships. So thank yeah. you for that. So that's sort of it for our discussion of amensalism and commensalism. Uh, these tend to be pretty hard to directly connect in a landscape. Um, there are some, again, with like the dung beetles as being a clear example of something that depends on another species that's totally unaffected by the relationship. Um, but often these are sort of loose, loosely tied uh, relationships, but not insignificant. Good. All right. Well, thank you, Teague, as usual. Thank you for elucidating. Yeah, all of course. No problem. Way. So, um, yeah, that wraps up with commensalism and amensalism. And, uh, yeah, well, until That's next great. time. Until next yeah, time. Been, I've been Teague. I don't know why people say I have been Teague. I am Teague, and I will continue being Teague until I talk to you next and time. I'm Glenn, but I have been Teagued because I took in knowledge from you. I'm going to go cut my hair and distribute it in the forest tonight. That's all right with you. I'll let you know how that works out. Great. All right, take. See you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. All right, naturalists. Thanks for joining us in our breakdown of commensalistic and amensalistic symbiotic relationships. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for neutral third parties, but it's about time we threw some friction into the natural order. It's exploitation first, followed by competition next. Nature red in tooth and claw at last. So stay tuned. And episodes drop every fortnight, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get new episodes hot off the press. 
You can also head over to crowspath.org for your natural history fix, archived episodes, online programming, and lots more. Till next time, engage your curiosity, discover your world, and we'll see you soon on The Single Acorn.